Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Today is a special day for our church. We will install two elders as a congregation. Last Sunday night, our people voted to set apart Don Bowman and Rich Brown to serve as elders of this body. They did that after a, thank you so much, after a long period of of preparation, and they're ready to serve in this capacity. And we did that because our church is congregational in nature, which means our church body is involved in setting apart its own leaders. We are not part of a denomination. We don't submit to any type of outside ecclesiastical authority because we don't find that in Scripture in any way. While we're congregational, it's also clear that we're led by men that God sets apart, elders, or to repeat our memorable phrase, we're elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally affirmed. And all three parts go together to build up the the body of Christ. Now, if you're like me, you you may have grown up uh, calling the leaders of the church pastor singular or pastors of the, of the church, but elder is just another name for, for the same office, along with overseer or bishop, if you read the King James, or shepherd, as Peter calls them. The Bible uses the term elder about 20 times, referring to the group of men who are called to oversee God's flock, and it's, it's used interchangeably with these, with these other terms. Uh, scripture uses different words to highlight the, the complementary aspect of the, of the same work. So the title elder implies a mature spiritual oversight. It, it actually comes from the Old Testament. Uh, the term shepherd nuances the role as a watchful caretaker and feeder of God's sheep. You know, as Christians, we're, we're called the flock of God. And the term overseer is, uh, highlights their, their role of, of leading. So the Bible is clear about who is qualified to fulfill that role. That's what we, we were looking at on, on Sunday nights. And Elders are to be men of noteworthy character. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus outlines the, the list of, of the character qualifications that, that are there. Or, or as Paul summarizes them to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2 they're, they're to be faithful men. What is a faithful man? Then you can go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus and see those qualifications. Elders or pastors are, are not holy men like you might find in false religions or, or even apostate ones like the Catholic Church. They're, they're not an elevated class of Christians who kind of float above the congregation and call everyone to, to climb up hither where, where we breathe this super spiritual air. They're fellow Christians gifted by the Spirit prepared by God to serve as caretakers of God's sheep. And, and while it is a high calling, it's, it's actually a, a lowly task marked by sacrificial service. Alexander Strzok rightly warns that elders and deacons are not appointed to a special priestly office or holy clerical order. Instead, they are assuming offices of leadership or service among God's people. And the New Testament always has more than one of them in each flock. Elders are always plural. Leaders are always plural. Anytime you, you see it in the, 
in the Bible, Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders in every church. Uh, Philippians 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, you have all three of them, the saints and the overseers and uh, the deacon. And notice all of those are, are plural. You have 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders, plural, who rule well be considered. You you have Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders, plural, and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who will give an account, and let them do this with joy and not grief. And then Titus 1, 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders, plural, in, in every city, singular, as I directed you. So, there to be many of them and as many as the church needs in order to lead, feed, and care for, for God's people. Some are set apart by the church to devote themselves to the task of preaching and teaching and to do that without distraction. Um, that's really what 1 Timothy 5.17 is talking about. Let the elders who rule well, they're to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So this verse says that all elders rule or oversee the flock, and 1 Timothy 3 says they must be able to teach. That's what differentiates them from deacons. But some elders labor hard at the task of preaching and teaching. That's probably what you think of whenever you hear the word pastor men who are paid by the church to fulfill that task, and they're in the pulpit like, like me. And it's because the task of, of this consecutive, continual preaching and teaching is so consuming that if the church didn't care for them, remunerate them, then they wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. But not all elders serve that way. Others work inside the church guiding and shepherding the flock. They, they rule, they oversee, but they're employed outside of the, of the church, like I was before I left the business world and went to seminary to prepare for preaching and, and, and teaching. Those men are sometimes called non-vocational, which just simply means the church doesn't compensate them, but they're, they have no less significance, no less authority. They just serve in a in a different capacity. They, they may not be gifted uh, in pulpit speaking to the same degree. They may not have the same level of training of those set apart to do the preaching and teaching, but, but they're to be faithful men and they're to be able to teach sound doctrine and refute error. In fact, the Bible tells us what all shepherds do, whether vocational or not. An elder is not a promoter or a businessman or a CEO or an executive or a psychologist or a producer. He's not to build big churches or construct massive buildings or accomplish great earthly things. Scripture likens an elder to, to able teachers, a hardworking farmer, a good soldier on active duty, a careful workman, a useful vessel, the Lord's bondservant, and slaves. Even the term shepherd is lowly, reflecting a humble task in New Testament times. Shepherds were not part of the upper class. They, they didn't carry any kind of weight in society. Their, their lives were dedicated day in and day out for the caring of their animals. And that's exactly why God uses the title for the, 
the visible leaders of his church. Ministry is not a glamorous career choice, if you understand it properly, biblically. You experience the difficulty of service in the church as, as a member, but, but that fight intensifies for those who are called to minister the, the Word of God and oversee the, the flock. While they're called to something that's filled with spiritual rewards, it's also particularly difficult Their afflictions and sufferings that are particular to the gospel ministry and and traps and toils that are present for uh, for the man of God and his his family. The specifics are too numerous to describe, but but Paul outlines some of them in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. There are family challenges. There are people problems. There are problem people. (laughs) There are difficulties and discouragements. There are trials and temptations, not to mention Satan and your own flesh. Frankly, at times the weight of shepherding, shepherding God's people can be overwhelming. It was recorded that uh, the great Presbyterian minister of the Reformation, John Knox, whenever he was called to ministry, ran out of the church weeping and locked himself in a, in a room because he feared the seriousness of the calling. He knew what he was being called to do. John Calvin made numerous excuses about serving in Geneva, and he wasn't dislodged until William Farrell called upon God to curse him if he didn't yield in a humorous statement whenever the, the town of Geneva ran Calvin out and Calvin was called to go back, he, he said that, that he would rather be placed on the rack than return to ministry in Geneva. I'm so thankful that I don't feel that way about you all. <laughs> and if the holy terror of God wasn't enough, sinful men are, are present to add to the weight. I mean, Paul describes ministry to Timothy as an extreme athletic contest that stretches you to the brink of your abilities. He said it's like war that consumes you to the point that you forget the world around you because the battle is, is intense. All of this and more awaits those who will enter the ministry of eldership. And who would sign up for that? Well, the Bible gives the answers. Those to whom God has chosen for the, for the task out of love for Christ. I mean, real ministry is not based on personal ambition or recognition or, or fame. It's a stewardship from, from the Lord. It's, it's one that's somewhat laden with hardship but filled with eternal reward. As Paul talks about our life in general in Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy. They're not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's the same way with labor for the Lord. But there's actually a passage that pulls all of it together and and puts all the aspects of a biblical ministry in, in one place. And I want to show it to you today before we set these men apart. It'll remind you how God describes a biblical ministry or biblical church because everyone should be involved in one. You're either called to biblical ministry or you're called to be part of one. And you should absolutely know what one looks like because that's where you should attend a church or those are the missionaries that you should support or 
how you should pray or support your, your elders here. Biblical ministry is an intense blessing and a privilege to be part of, and that's outlined in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. And it's the Apostle Paul's outline of biblical ministry. And he identifies six traits here in verses 24 through, through 29. Six traits of a biblical ministry. And Paul is writing this letter. We've been in Colossians and Philemon talking about forgiveness and, and repentance. But, but in the, 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 the real purpose that he writes this letter was to, to refute some, some really bad heresy. And he begins with this high view of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. So after greeting the church and expressing his profound thankfulness to God for the grace that came to them, he exalts the one that made that grace possible. Look at verse 15, if you will. We'll get a running start. Speaking of Jesus in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Passage is one of the most Christ-exalting in all the Bible. It shouts the glories of Christ as God's beloved Son who has provided redemption and forgiveness. He is the image of the invisible God and maintains preeminence now and, and forever. And this is also the one that called Paul to ministry. Look, if you would, at the end of verse 23. Paul says at the very end of verse 23, end of which I, Paul, was made a minister, literally a diakonos, uh, where we get the term deacon, was made a servant. Now don't miss that this ends this section about the preeminence of Christ. This section about the preeminence of Christ ends with a statement about ministry. I mean, after presenting this Mount Everest passage about the work of Christ, Paul understands or establishes the, the basis of his understanding of a biblical ministry. The preeminence of the person of Jesus Christ is the backdrop for the calling to elder wealth. Not a man's abilities or personality or entrepreneurial spirit. By looking fully at him, by first looking fully at him, then an elder and a congregation can grasp the calling and what ministry is all about. It's totally backwards today. Totally backwards. Congregations look for pastors based on human abilities, and churches build entire programs on cultural trends, and people look for a place to commit their families as far as where I'm going to put myself under spiritual shepherding based on trivial things like how good is the youth group or the worship style. And Paul says the shadow that falls over a biblical ministry and where you, should, where you should place yourself, that shadow is Christ and His preeminence and His, His work. And so... As Paul considers ministry, he, he begins with a view of the Savior, and from that he gives us a perspective of what biblical ministry looks like. And there are six traits in verses 24 through 29. He says ministry involves suffering. He says ministry's recipient is the church. Number three, ministry is described as a stewardship. 
Number four, it's fulfilled through preaching and teaching. And number five, its goal is the maturity of every believer. And number six, he says, ministry's load is borne by God's power. What does it mean to have a biblical philosophy of ministry? What are elders called to commit themselves to do? What's their task? Well, the first thing that Paul says, the first trait of a biblical ministry is ministry involves suffering. Look, if you would, at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings and share in completing or filling up what was lacking in in Christ's affliction. This is actually the, the main clause of the passage, and the rest of the chapter just explains what, what he means, the rest of the passage. I mean, Paul, of course, does not mean that Christ's payment on the cross was somehow insufficient, because that contradicts everything he says everywhere else. Or somehow his own sufferings, or the sufferings of a pastor, somehow assisted to purge him uh, of his sin, like the Roman Catholic error. He means, as Christ's servant, he would be the target of affliction that was meant for his Lord. What was intended for Christ, Christ not being here, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, they can't get to Christ, and so they come to the next best thing, and that's, that's the Apostle Paul, or in this case, a pastor or an elder, as they, what they hurled at his master, Paul received in his master's absence, in his stead. Now, every Christian experiences that just to some degree. You know the world hates you because it hates Christ. And the point is that the world was not done whenever Jesus died. They hated Christ so much that they, they murdered him. They, they, they killed him, as, as one man I was reading this past week said. And the hatred they had for him was not enough. They, it didn't, they weren't able to fulfill the... The, the depth of their hatred. And so now not being able to get to Jesus, it's now directed at you as followers. But Paul says an elder will receive it in a unique way. He shares in Christ's afflictions as one who stands in his place. Again, a great recruiting tool for the ministry, come and suffer. <laughs> but God makes clear ministry involves suffering. And a pastor's heart is usually... A joyful one, but also a broken one. It's a paradox, frankly. I mean, you felt it in the Christian life in, in a lot of ways. It's what we described with Brother John this morning. You hear a bad diagnosis, but you hope because of the resurrection. You experience that paradox every time that you're in a funeral. You sorrow, but you do so with hope. It's perplexing to the world. The world doesn't have the capacity to, to do that. Suffering mingled with joy is something that Paul says ministers have as they elder. Suffering that comes from the flock that, that they shepherd, affliction that comes from outside the church, but they enjoy the work. They wouldn't want to do anything else with their, with their life. I mean, there's an indescribable pain when someone that you've preached to and prayed for walks away from the faith. There's deep heartache whenever those you love... You, they're sick, 
or they face death, or they imbibe false teaching, or, or whatever it is. One of the hardest wounds is betrayal. Those who are within the body turn on you, or the, the bite with the betrayal of a friend. Paul surely understood this, which is why he uses this term for affliction here. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And he uses this term affliction. Philipsis, which means pressure or tribulation. This is where the Roman Catholic Church gets their misinterpretation of purgatory, one of the places. And while a minister is not called to go to a mythical place like purgatory, he may feel the fire on earth. And the Bible says all who live godly will suffer persecution. And Paul is saying as a, as a pastor associated with the gospel, they'll receive what the world gave to the one who came to save it. And as you consider where you attend church, as you think about where to, to get training, as you choose elders to, to set under and, and follow, you want a man and a place that sees ministry as a joyful association with Christ to the point that the world directs affliction there. Because they can't tell the difference between Jesus and the church. There's no daylight between what he taught, what he stood for. You don't want to place based on personality or growth or glamour because when suffering comes, it'll crumble. The foundation is not right. The house will fall under pressure. And the faithful servant of Jesus expects this affliction because they've been called to keep the master's bride until he comes. The second trait of a biblical ministry. The recipient is Christ's church. Master purchased the bride, and, and she is the benefactor of his servant's work, his minister's work. Look, if you would, at the verse 24 and 25. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake in my flesh, and I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church. And he goes on to say, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship of God bestowed on me for your benefit. Your benefit being the church. So the elders work as a field. You have no service without someone to serve. And Paul defines the target of ministry here, the target of eldering. It's not the masses out there in YouTube blogosphere. It's not the publishers. Uh, it's not conferences or or anything else. It's, it's the local church. He says the benefactor of the pastor's work is God's church, and his servant is manifested in labor for the, for the body. Last week, we referenced Jesus' restoration of Peter in John 21. And you remember, he asked Peter three times in restoration, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord. And you remember what Jesus says to him? how Peter would express that love, how Peter would express that service. Now he's being restored to ministry. What will Peter's ministry look like? What will be the target of Peter's ministry? He says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Three times he says it. It's the target. The minister of God is not excused from doing the work of an evangelist, and, and no true pastor would, would want to be excused from that task. But his primary calling is ministry to serve the body of Christ. 
so then you can do the work of ministry. I mean, you can think of it logically. How many elders do we have here? Five now. How many are there in the congregation? 550, 600? I, I don't know. How many hours a week do you focus on people outside of the body of Christ when we gather? Three hours a week, and yet you go out into the world, 40, 50, 60, whatever it is. Pastor is to shepherd the flock of God to explain the truth that was committed to him by faithful men so they can continue to teach others. It's what Peter says, how he describes ministry. Paul in Colossians, Peter here. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, notice sufferings again, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. There's the joy, there's the, there's the promise, and here's the command, shepherd the flock of God, not the world, but the flock of God, which is among you. You are to be among the flock, not above them, serving as overseers, yet you will look over them. Not by compulsion, but willingly. There's the joy, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples, models to the flock. You want to be at a church and under men who understand the focus of their labor is the preparation and the equipping of the bride to present the bride pure and holy without spot and blemish to the Lord whenever He comes. You want to be trained under that perspective. Ministry's recipient is the bride of Christ. That's why God has placed the, the pastor or the elder in the church. And that work was given by Christ Himself. Third trait of a biblical ministry is it's described as a, steward, a stewardship. It involves suffering. It's recipient is Christ's church, and it's described as a stewardship. Verse 25 again, Paul says of this, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit. And then he says, so that I might fully carry out the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Verse 23 says the same thing. He was made a minister. How are you made a servant? Well, somebody makes you uh, a servant. And a servant is not an owner, but they hold something in trust that, that, that's not theirs. And we all understand Paul was an apostle, and there was a special calling for apostles. They bridged the gap between the, the Old Testament and the, the New Testament. The apostles and the prophets, they came, and Ephesians tells us that they laid the foundation of the church. That's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. You have the Gospels, which reveals the, the Messiah who was promised to come in the Old Testament. Here he is in the New Testament. Here's his perfections. Here's his work. Here's his death on the cross as a substitute and his resurrection, God's acceptance of that, and then... He sends out 12 apostles and prophets as well that minister to them all through the book of Acts, and they're laying the foundation. They're receiving Scripture, they're planting churches, and so on. They were called by Christ Himself. They're specifically chosen by God to be His ministers. But the Bible also says that the men that replaced them, the apostles and prophets, laid the foundation. They went off the scene. The, the, the ones that replaced them were the evangelists and the pastors and teachers, or missionaries and pastor teachers. And they're given the same stewardship. 
I mean, no biblical elder sees this work as something that they own. If they do, run. I was at Michigan earlier this past week at a, an expositor seminary meetings, and we were talking about a famous preacher that fell and has now planted a church again in, in Phoenix, which is where one of our campuses you know, are at, and the way he described ministry was a family business. He's like the coach. And nothing was done in the church without his approval. It sounds more like the mafia than it does a biblical church. No biblical elder, no, no genuine man called of God sees the church as something that he owns. He sees it as something to spend and be spent for. He's called by God and he's placed in, in the work by, by the church. Stewardship or dispensation, as the King James says, is, is a word that comes from household. Uh, it implies a responsibility, authority, an obligation. It was given to a household slave by, by his master. He's been placed there with those responsibilities because the master has called him to that task. That's what Paul is saying. The master has called me to this task. And those who are under him will, will not answer to the steward, but the one who placed the steward there. You don't have to worry about facing me at all on the Bema seat or at the Bema seat. But you should be concerned about the one who called both me and you to be faithful to the word. And the church is not yours as a body. It's surely not mine. Ministry is not mine. The gospel is not mine. The calling is not mine. It's all God's. And if you've ever considered giving your life to Christ in, in ministry, you get that. Maybe the Lord's calling to you to that. Maybe even now. May, he does it in various ways. You could be sitting here finishing my sentences, or you could be sitting here changing my sentences. Or you may be like Don Bowman, who, who was doing aspects of eldering already, but never considered being recognized by the church to do that corporately until he was approached. And then the Lord pressed it upon his heart. However it happens, you will not feel worthy and you will not feel ready. But when God calls a man into ministry, he'll, he will see it as a stewardship. He will know he serves the one who is the true owner. And that's for a specific reason. Because all he has to say is what someone else has said, not his, not his own words. Here's the fourth trait of a biblical ministry. It's fulfilled through the word. Look at how he ends verse 25. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. And the result was so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Paul says he, made a, he was made a steward to fulfill the word of God. Literally the idea so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Repeated in a number of other places. 2 Timothy 4, you know this well. Paul charges Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, all long suffering and 
Notice how he ends this in verse 5. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, there's the suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What ministry? The proclamation, the teaching, the making plain of the Word of God. That, that's the ministry. That's what all elders must be able to do, regardless of whether they're in the pulpit every Sunday or not, because that's their primary tool. The only thing that I have to say, or that any elder has to say, is what God has already said, because that's the only thing that will transform. That's why any ministry, other than a word-based ministry, a, a ministry that explains what God has already said, is impotent. I have nothing for you. This is the nuclear option. I, I, don't, I don't have anything. And, and if I did, you wouldn't want it. And the term judge that Paul uses here in, in Timothy applies an evaluation. It charges him. Before God, who will judge the living and the dead. What a serious and sobering statement before he gives him the command to preach the word. He uses the word krino, which... When we think of the word judgment, we think of like condemnation. But this word is, first means a critic. It's where we get critic or criteria. And Paul is telling Timothy as he preaches that he and every preacher lives under the divine evaluation of what is taught. And when preaching and teaching takes place, there are two parties being evaluated. The preacher, for what he says, you will give an account for every word that you utter and the hearers for how you respond to what the Word says. The implication is that the preacher's evaluation comes from God, not man, just as his task comes from his calling. The vast majority of the commands in the Bible given to elders are related to proclamation. So Paul goes on to define a biblical ministry scope. Look if you would at verse 26. This is still under the preaching and teaching. That is, fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, it's in italics, but that's the implication. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of His mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, or we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man. Paul says the reason ministry was given is to fully reveal God's redemptive plan through preaching and teaching. It's an elder's goal whenever he teaches. Whether it's like me who does this every Sunday or an elder sitting with an open Bible refuting error or correcting or assisting. But that's the goal whenever you teach. Mystery is, I'm sure you know, is not something hidden um, like, you know, still hidden. I am here to unscrew the inscrutable or something like that. A mystery in the Bible is something hidden before but now revealed by God. It's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. We'll be back in Daniel next week. I know it's been a while. 
But do you remember what Daniel says about God to Nebuchadnezzar? You remember chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and it's terrifying to him, the statue, and none of the wise men can, can give him the interpretation, but God gives the interpretation to, to Daniel. You remember what Daniel says to, to Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. And there is a biblical definition of, of the word mystery. He says God is the one who reveals mysteries, which is, which is something not known in the past about the future, and that God, in His timing, chooses to reveal it. Something not known before. And Paul is saying Christ was promised in the Old Testament, but there were things about Him not fully known. But in the fullness of time, whenever, whenever Christ came, now in the New Testament, He's fully displayed. There, there were things unknown in the old covenant that, that are now being proclaimed in the new covenant. Like he's the hope of the Gentiles. And Paul says that a New Testament elder is called to, to that task. The task of a New Testament preacher is to reveal the whole counsel of God by, by exposing the word to the ministry that God has now made manifest. He's now, he's now pulled the curtain back. He's now laid it bare. And, and notice what it says here in verse 26. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. That's the Old Testament saints. But has now been made manifest, unveiled to His saints, to the church. Do you sometimes get jealous over the Jewish people? I mean, in a in a righteous kind of way, wow. They receive the covenants, the, 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 the sacrificial system. I know sometimes you think of the law like this is bad, this is hard, but, but there's glory in that. Paul, David said that he delighted in the law of God. It was a joyful thing for a true Jew to, to go to the temple. He didn't go there grudgingly. That, that, that's the, what the scribes and the Pharisees turned it into. Someone who truly loved God, they went to the temple out of worship. They, they kept the Sabbath out of worship. I get to spend this day with my family and focus only, only on the Lord. It was a privilege that they had. Salvation to the Jew first, but then also to the Gentile. But the church is also privileged in a way that Paul says, God ordained to make, to make the, the Jewish people jealous we have things revealed in the New Covenant and the New Testament. And that mystery was now made manifest, and it's specifically to the saints. That's what he says here. Verse 27, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory. What a phrase. The riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Gentiles primarily make up the church, not all, but primarily. And then he describes it, which is Christ in you, the, the hope of glory. The Old Testament predicted the coming of the Messiah. And the Gentiles would partake in salvation. 
But there was never any idea in the Jewish mind that the Gentiles would live part of the covenant community. I asked my friend Boaz one time, do you believe that Gentiles are going to heaven? Yes. Well, well, how? They're going to grab hold of the the, the tassels of a Jew and go into the kingdom riding on their coattails, like Zechariah said, I think is what, what he quoted. No. We'll go in as as one new man in Christ, Jew or Gentile, because all come the same way through the sacrifice of the Messiah. What is now made known is to preach Christ and Him crucified, which is the good news to all men, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And by doing that, God forms Christ in every believer. So here's the fifth trait of the biblical ministry. Its goal is the maturity of the saints or the maturity of of every believer. Now think about what Paul's saying here because you may be challenged. Again, here's one of those paradoxes. We'll talk some more about it tonight in the sermon about the will of God. But notice what he says here in verse 28. He says it involves suffering. The recipient of ministry is Christ's church. It's described as a stewardship. It's fulfilled through preaching. But his goal is the maturity of every believer. Verse 28. We proclaim him, that's Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is where we get our statement as a church. We, our goal is to make Christ known and His Word clear. Paul says we pray, proclaim Him or whom we preach. We're to proclaim Christ to every man. And every man is emphatic. Uh, three times it's used. The gospel is not exclusive to a few, but it's to be preached to all. But not all will respond. Not all will be saved. We're not universalists. But all are to hear and be commanded to repent and, and believe. And the goal is for Christ to be formed in, in every person. We're to make Christ known to all, and we are to teach and admonish in all wisdom. These are participles in the present tense, emphasizing the continual and habitual action. We proclaim Him. We proclaim Christ. And we do that to everyone, to the whole world. And then we're admonishing every man and teaching every man. That's how we're going about doing this work with all wisdom, that we may present every man mature in Christ. The goal of ministry is Christ's likeness. And that comes from the Word. God creates His people by the Word. God can forms His people by that same word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. First Peter, having been, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and, lives and abide forever. Jesus, John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. And when the word is taught clearly and understood and obeyed, people come to Christ and they become more like Christ. Which is why whenever you remove a word-based ministry or you make it something about the five ways to fix your finances or whatever else, then there's no salvation and there's no growth or it's all superficial. It's wood, hay, and stubble. It's like a mushroom, not like an oak tree. 
ministry begins with making Christ known and continues by making the word clear in teaching and admonishing, putting truth in the mind, and that's hard labor. Which is how Paul finishes his thought here. Sixth trait of a biblical ministry is ministry's load is borne by God's power. Look at you at verse 29. Not just suffering, but it's hard work. He describes the work as personal labor, but accomplished by God's power. Verse 29. For this purpose, for everything that he just got done saying, for this purpose, also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. So he uses this word for labor and striving, so two words about how hard it is, but then two phrases about how God is the one who, who actually empowers him to do that, according to his power, which is mightily working in, in me. It's a fitting into to where we began. Suffering awaits the minister, but through Christ, God's power is resident within him for the work. Paul says, I labor, striving according to his working. Labor is a strong word. It's meaning to labor to the point of exhaustion. I know the jokes. I was out of ministry before going into full-time ministry. I've been doing this 25 years. I know the jokes. Preachers only work three hours a week. I would happily drag you around in my life and show you that it's more than three hours a week. The word for labor here is strong. It means labor to the point of exhaustion. It means attendant toil, tireless exertion, struggles against all manners of setbacks. The word for striving is where we get our word to agonize. I was going to say everybody's watching the Olympics, but I don't think anybody's watching the Olympics. But when I was growing up, it was the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Do you remember that tagline? The agony of defeat. Paul says ministry is agony. It's to agonize. But those who have been called to it strive according to God's working. Paul says, let no one misunderstand what I'm saying here. While I labor and strive and while it is agony, Christ is the one who works. Ministry is labor and there is Nothing possible apart from his strengthening. You'd crumble under ministry if it wasn't for God's power working mightily in you. So no, you can't do it on your own. But yes, you can with him working in you. Because what God calls you to do, he empowers you to do. Nothing's apart from him. And both of these men that will set apart would say the same thing. They can't do it without Christ. You've been called to follow them. Their heart cries like mine, how I long for Christ to be formed in you as a church body. They understand the six traits of biblical ministry, that it involves suffering. They know what they're signing up for to a certain degree. You are the target of their labor, Christ church. They understand it's a stewardship, it's not their own. They, they know it will be fulfilled through preaching and teaching, through making the word clear. They know the goal is for your maturity, and, and they know that the load will be borne by, by God's power. 
And so before I call them up and the other two men, to the three of us will pray over them, I would just say to you, pray for us. Obey those who have rule over you. Share their burdens. Don't add to them because that wouldn't be profitable for you. Love them and esteem them highly in the Lord. And the God of all grace will use us to bring completion. Christ in, in you. If we do it faithfully. And I know you're a biblical church. And if any one of us would ever cease to do that. You would either run us out or you would run yourself. And rightly so. We're going to lay hands on these two men and set them apart from this task. So I would just ask you um, to be prayerful as we do that. Pray with us. I'm going to invite Don Bowman and Rich and Larry and Jeff to come. And if Don and Rich, if you guys would just stand here in the middle and face outwardly. And Jeff and Larry, you would get behind both of those men. You guys just step up a little bit. So those guys can get behind you. Perfect. There you go. We're gonna you're gonna lay hands on them, and I'm gonna do that as as I pray. So let's let's pray for them, and you bow together as a congregation. Let's pray for these brothers. Father, we come before you as a church body, and we thank you for the gospel ministry. We thank you for this church that has stood in the truth and for the gospel for decades and decades. We pray that if you tarry, that would continue. And we thank you for your word that is so plain and so clear, even as it has shown us this morning what a biblical ministry looks like. We thank you, Lord, that you call men to this lowly task for such a high purpose. And we thank you this morning specifically for these two men, Don Bowman and Rich Brown, that you have called and that this body has recognized and that we now set apart for the task of, of shepherding and eldering and overseeing, teaching us. We thank you for the faithfulness in their life that we were able to see. We, we thank you for the spiritual gifts that you had given them. We, we know that they are far from complete, but we also trust your work in them. And we, we look to you now as a congregation. You would serve your body through them. We pray that you would preserve them and their wives and their families. We pray that the gospel would be clear and go forth through this congregation because of their work, that maturity would come to the body of Christ, that people would be trained, men would be trained for ministry, that missionaries would be launched, that you would be glorified. And that whenever we stand before the bar, before the bema seat of Christ, I pray that every member of this church would be able to say that they were, were easy sheep to, to lead, that they have received some benefit from these two brothers' labor.
and that as they stand before the Bema Seat of Christ, they would have rewards, shepherds, to be able to cast at your feet to bring you the praise that you deserve. We love you. We praise you. And we set them apart as a church for this task. In Jesus' name, amen.